Welcome everyone to this week's installation of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Um, and we are very happy to have with us today uh, Melody Jew, who's uh, Assistant Professor of English at University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, and you're going to talk with us about your new book, uh, Wild Blue Media. There it is. So I'm just going to leave the floor to you. All right, thank you. Well, it's my pleasure to be here today. I know so much has gotten ca uh, canceled with COVID that it's really nice to be able to uh, connect with people who might be interested in my book, uh, even remotely, uh, and coming from many different time zones. So I can already tell with the videos for some of us, the lighting's very different. Um, this is, I think, the palest I've ever looked on, uh, on Zoom so far, since it's uh, 7 a.m. in California. Um, so I wanted to start just by maybe talking about the, the origins of the book and how it got started, um, in case this is helpful, especially for any junior scholars who are listening. And uh, this book really came out of um, a couple of things that were happening during my first year of graduate school when I was interested in science fiction, interested in theories of metaphor, um, but was sort of disenchanted with my current project. Uh, and what happened was I ha uh, was watching the original Blue Planet documentary series with David Attenborough. And there's this one particular episode that um, many fans remember uh, of the deep sea, where David Attenborough says that there have been more people to uh, visit outer space than to the very bottom of the ocean. And then he proceeded to talk about how there are all these alien sea creatures that populated the depths that whose uh, existences and lives were so very different from our own. And uh, it struck me at that moment that uh, something I had loved for a long time, the ocean, having, having grown up in California, although lived elsewhere, uh, that the ocean itself was uh, a fantastic subject for the study of science fiction. And so that, that uh, insight uh, prompted me to think differently about different courses I was taking. I was taking one on spatial theory and I noticed that every single reading was terrestrial. There was nothing that focused on ocean space or how things were different in the ocean. And so this led to a, a series of questions that uh, morphed simply into how are concepts different underwater or how are, how are concepts or how do we think differently underwater than we do um, on land and where can we look for areas of uh, what I call in my book uh, terrestrial bias. Now, terrestrial bias can take different forms. So in, if you're approaching it from a sort of uh, visual media studies uh, perspective, maybe you look at uh, different kinds of normative uh, orientation or uh, perception or uh, visual qualities. Um, and if you look for uh, terrestrial bias in, in literature, it can also take different forms. So maybe the selection of mainly terrestrial vocabulary. And as I looked into this further, other authors had noticed this too, or other scholars had noticed this too, that many of our descriptions for the ocean are simply analogies to terrestrial spaces. Uh, so if you think of um, uh, different concepts like um, uh, land ethic. There's someone who's talked about an ocean ethic. Um, and in my book, I go through a few more of these examples, but uh, it's, it's so, so prevalent that we're reaching, we, we reach for things that are familiar in order to describe something that, that's not. Uh, so terrestrial bias is a key concept in my book, but um, others have also worked with it too. So the historian Helen Roswodowski uh, talks about this in her history of the oceans called Vast Empires. Um, and uh, this is what this is what really got me started, um, and so during the process of begin of writing be beginning to write the book, uh, I also had the thought that well, if I'm if I'm so interested in the feel and embodied occupation of ocean space, maybe I shouldn't just read other people's descriptions of it. Maybe I should actually get trained to become a scuba diver and go out into the ocean myself. And that had also been something I'd wanted to do for a while. And so the book actually became an alibi <laughs> to <laughs> channel some research funding towards uh, learning to become a scuba diver, uh, which I, you know, now realize is, is such a pre-COVID uh, ambition and thought to have now that our mobility is so constrained. Um, I, haven't, I haven't been diving since before the pandemic. But uh, but this, but that was also a really good choice because it um, gave me it gave me the literacy to be able to read people like Jacques Cousteau very differently and understand what was at stake physiologically uh, in his descriptions of risk in diving underwater. And so when uh, one thinks about something like amphibiousness, uh, it 
the process of diving and the experience of diving gave me a solid understanding to uh, see how amphibiousness is not the unlimited condition of belonging to two worlds and being able to transition between them. If you're talking about amphibiousness in the context of scuba diving, uh, it's actually um, about exchanging temporarily belonging in one world for safe belonging in another. Um, and I talk about this a lot in my first chapter on uh, the interface. Um, so on that note, I'll give a brief overview of the book uh, organization. Uh, so the book organization uh, has to do with a science fictional concept I call conceptual displacement. And so the book, which straddles literature studies, media studies, and science and technology studies, uh, is organized around three particular media concepts and then a fourth conclusion one uh, that imagine what happens if you take interface, uh, inscription, database, and imagine these in underwater contexts instead of terrestrial contexts. So if media studies uh, so reflexively turns to computational media, to cables, to networks, to hard things, uh, my question is not just how do the objects change or how does mediation change, but how do the ways that we talk about media in the first place, how do these necessarily change once we shift the normative environment to the ocean rather than uh, the land? Uh, and so again, each of these concepts structures a different chapter in the book. Um, now, one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, related to this is uh, the concept I generate of milieu specificity. And so uh, rather than thinking of the ocean and the land in a kind of dialectical relationship or oppositional relationship, really what the book is trying to do is open up a uh, milieu specific uh, mode of scholarship or thinking that really inquires into the uh, what are the affordances of particular environments for specifically embodied perception. And what I mean by this is that uh, when we I think that where we think from matters in terms of different kinds of habits, different types of things we take for granted, even the way we experience gravity um, or the or movement. Um, so the so in a way, the book uh, models one way of thinking with deep water in in the ocean uh, in order to prompt others in the environmental humanities to think about the specificities of places uh, like deltas, for example, or more um, polar landscapes, or you could, you know, specify sort of the contours of um, a particular environment um, across many different scales. Um, and that's really the goal with this um, is again not to say the ocean does everything better but just to say it does things differently it does things science fictionally it disorients the scholar who's used to sitting comfortably at their desk uh, by uh, changing how they experience directionality uh, so for example in uh, chapter two on the vampire squid uh, which was really where the book originally uh, started this chapter focuses on Willem Flusser's um, speculative text um, Vampirotuthis infernalis. And um, actually, I can show you a picture of the, squ uh, the squid here because it is, um, should be one of the pictures. Oh, did I not include it as a picture in the color insert? Maybe not. Anyway, uh, it's, it looks about like, like this. Uh, so it has 10 tentacles and a kind of umbrella underneath it. And it's about six inches long in reality, uh, lives off the coast of Monterey Bay, among other places in these deep canyons. Uh, but Flusser was intrigued by this figure as a way of thinking, the, the vampire squid, as a way of thinking about uh, photography um, and also the types of underwater media that may exist for the vampire squid in the deep sea. So if you can't have inscription, which would be a mark, on, or a mark or a cut on some kind of surface, if you can't have inscription in that form, what can you have in the deep sea? So that chapter uh, takes a look at the, uh, the vampire squid as protagonist. And then I sort of go through his fable and look at the different ways in which it's very, very similar to Flusser's other writings on photography. But I also look at a couple other science fictions uh, that challenge the, the idea of um, uh, what, uh, what inscription um, might might be. So again, rather than reflexively reaching for inscription as the um, as the only way to think about information or to think about meaning, um, actually, uh, there's um, I think different ways to uh, imagine this in in underwater contexts. So I won't uh, spoil the end of the chapter there, but that's that's sort of where that goes. Um, I also wanted to talk uh, briefly about the um, the 
I guess maybe the first chapter since there's a little bit more time here. So this one on the interface uh, looks at both science fiction and diving memoir uh, from Jacques Cousteau and Sylvia Earle. The short stories I talk about are uh, include Oceanic by Greg Egan. Um, and uh, there's a way that even though the book is, um, is, is thinking science fictionally, uh, it's not solely about ocean science fiction, but I, draw, I do draw on a couple examples uh, throughout. And in this chapter, uh, rather than thinking about the interface as a surface that's impenetrable um, physically or that is a kind of barrier or boundary, uh, as in the uh, original definition of the interface as the boundary between two fluids, uh, this one takes the interface as the, the, the human lungs and scuba diving as a porous, uh, as a porous membrane that actually allows safety, um, safe, safe passage underwater. And what I uh, learned from uh, taking scuba, diver, uh, scuba diving training is that uh, your body absorbs gases as you breathe. And so there's actually this whole aspect of duration and time that is crucial to understanding diver safety. And I, the reason I turned to Cousteau's written literature rather than films is because that's where he describes very precisely the physiology of scuba diving and uh, some very dangerous experiments that read pretty horrifically to, to someone who uh, now knows the safe boundaries of uh, uh, what it means to go scuba diving today. Uh, and so the interface um, led me to think about of, you know, other things we take for granted in the humanities. So for example, uh, these debates about uh, surface reading and um, hermeneutics of suspicion or um, like sort of deep, you know, deep, deep reading. And uh, in, in thinking about these debates, what, what, um, what the ocean really taught me is that both of them are predicated on a surface level observer who either encounters a surface and is standing or does not go further into the depths. And so that um, made me very aware of a kind of normative spatial imaginary that is built into our models of interpretation in, uh, in the first place. Um, so those are just a few highlights, highlights from the, from the book. Um, uh, the conclusion is about underwater museums. And I know that the, the, there's two, two museum fans who invited me to speak today. So, uh, so I'm happy to speak about that more as, uh, as, a, as an experience. Um, because everything you think about the museum with, uh, with permanence and appreciation and distance between you and the object, that all gets a lot more complicated when the museum is located underwater. So the book concludes with thinking through the museum as an occasion uh, to bring the previous three media concepts interface inscription and database into conversation around uh, the uh, these submerged sculptures that I talk about underwater by Jason DeCaris Taylor, uh, as well as these uh, underwater caverns uh, that are specific to the Yucatan Peninsula um, that are freshwater and um, present a very different kind of experience of museum-like uh, diving um, in, a, in a space. Uh, so I think uh, there's, of course, more to say, but I think I'll, I'll leave it there. I'm about at 15 minutes, and I'd be more than happy to take some questions. All right. Thank you so much. What a great introduction, uh, Melody. And I wanted to um, just start with my own question in, in you talking about ins inscription um, mm -hmm. in the water. Um, and I, it got me thinking about sound and the way sound waves, of course, travel very differently in water and the distances at which they play. And I was wondering, um, does sound come into your work in thinking about how that's inscribed or not? Yeah, so actually not sound so much, although it's it's very much on my, my radar. Uh, Stefan Helmrich has written a lot about sound in his new book, Sounding the Limits of Life, especially in ocean contexts. And he has a new book out on wave media. And John Shiga has been studying the history of sonar. And those those two are, are um, very great scholars on this. Um, yeah, so actually, interestingly, in the book, um, I think more about orientation than I do about sound. Um, and this all comes from my experience of um, uh, attempting, you know, attempt, uh, being very aware as a new diver, and I've, you know, s since gone diving a lot more, but uh, the normative position that you're supposed to achieve is this nice horizontal glide with your, your arms kind of tucked behind or sort of tucked like right here, holding your gauges in so they don't fly everywhere and hit things. And that's actually not an easy position to achieve if you're used to standing. 
And so anytime I felt out of control as a, as a swimmer, like maybe some, you know, current was pushing me or something, I'd, I'd automatically just want to stand up and have my flippers behind, uh, underneath me. And that reflex uh, taught me um, a lot about what to, what to look for in terms of um, sort of normative terrestrial orientations or reflexes. And I was also inspired a lot by Sarah Ahmed's uh, comments on orientation and thinking through orientation um, uh, in, uh, in her book. Um, and so where this came to be very important was in chapter two on the vampire squid, uh, where I looked at metaphors of orientation um, as things that would change if you were underwater. So in many of the ways we speak about the world, and here I'm drawing on uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson's 1980 book, Metaphors We Live By, uh, many of the ways that we, we orient to the world um, have to do with our terrestrial experience of gravity. So when you think about all the colloquial things you say, like, uh, and I'm only thinking in, in English here, but uh, are you, uh, you know, I'm feeling up today or my spirits lifted uh, versus oh, my spirits sank or, you know, yet another day into the pandemic. So those types of things are orientational metaphors that are embedded in, um, embedded in language. Um, and I think the question then becomes, well, what are normative orientational metaphors for something like the vampire squid? And this is why uh, throughout the book, I think of the ocean not just as a, I think of it as a perceptual environment, which requires negotiating between environmental affordances and an embodied observer, uh, such, as, such as the vampire squid. And so you can kind of, uh, uh, you know, switch up your sea creature if you want to make this more refreshing, like don't just go for whales and dolphins, although those are actually, you know, some of the better ones to think about with sound. Uh, but you can think about um, the, uh, yeah, the phenomenal world of uh, the vampire squid living in the abyss with only little glowing, you know, a little bit of bioluminescence and um, uh, think about how that drifts along and, uh, in, you know, encounters its world. What does feeling up mean for such a creature um, that experiences neutral buoyancy um, and can kind of just go any direction it, it, it wants to and uh, does not depend necessarily on sight as, a prim as the, primary, um, the primary function? Or maybe you think about um, sharks and rays and their electrosensitivity and what that, that kind of organ even means. Uh, I don't go into that in this book, but, uh, but there's definitely a way that proliferating the um, sensory ecologies that you're familiar with uh, can teach you to look for some very different things um, that are meaningful in, in an environment in the first place. Um, but, uh, but sound is a good one, I think, for um, uh, thinking about um, ephemerality passing through, through, through a body. Um, I have another piece that's, that's not in this book that's actually... Um, uh, well, do I have this book on my shelf? Um, it's, it's the Ecotopian Lexicon book. I wrote about dolphins and sound for this book. It's an entry that's simply titled, um, uh, like, a, you know, the, the swish sign, asterisk swish sign. And in this, uh, in this very, very short piece, I um, imagine uh, it pronounced like this like just blowing on the back of your hand. And it's supposed to be a lone, um, well, it's sort of, a science fiction. It's, it's a loan word I imagine from dolphin for tickling at a distance. And I was inspired by the way that dolphin vocalizations uh, can actually not just sound in a certain way, you feel them underwater because the water conducts the feel of sound. And so it's a sort of, I guess you would call it uh, for humans, a synesthetic um, experience of um, feeling, feeling the sound um, while not being directly like body to body in contact because the water mediates that and you can be tickled at a distance. And so I thought that that was an interesting figure to think with for different kinds of media phenomena as well. Like maybe when your phone vibrates or you get an, uh, you get an alert or there's these different things that uh, affectively get to you that are uh, transmitted sort of in this way. So um, in that case, sound became a way to think about transmission, but it's sort of, uh, it, you know, it was a piece that was adjacent to the book, but not quite in it. And just a quick question from the chat about that. You had mentioned a couple of scholars who had worked on sound before yeah. um, at the beginning. Who were those? So that are... Yeah. So uh, one is uh, Stefan Helmrich. Uh, he's at MIT. And another one is John Shiga, and he's at Carleton University. Okay. Thanks uh, mm -hmm. for that. Uh, Dorothy, you have a question. Yeah, the name's not Dorothy, actually. That's oh. a leftover from uh, when I was doing a LARP. It, this is Laura. <laughs> that's Laura. <laughs> I, I know who it is. 
Hello. 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 <laughs> but um, no, my name is Laura Optebaker. I'm a PhD fellow at the University of Oslo, and I do my work on video games. And mm. uh, I've been kind of thinking about underwater uh, media environments uh, for a long time because a lot of these video games that have come out, especially recently, they're kind of, they're all in the water, and they're all about exploring this underwater space. Mm -hmm. um, because I know for a fact you have a colleague in the Film and Media Studies Department, Alanda Chang, yes. <laughs> uh, kind of the big name in uh, environmental video games at the moment. Uh, I was just wondering, like, do you at some point um, uh, engage or interact with, with new media, with video games, with kind of interactive space, specifically also because you're so interested in, in, in this idea of an interface? Uh, and then kind of uh, adding to that, uh, as I caught your conversation about octopus aesthetics, uh, I hosted a reading group and one of our sessions was about octopus imaginaries and in it I linked some interesting people who do, who kind of I think, so you've called it like a terrestrial bias. In this video game, Octodad, there is a kind of aquatic bias because you play this unwieldy octopus on land. Mm -hmm. The game, kind of the, the conceit of it is that it's, it's just crazy to kind of imagine this this body on land, but then in, in one instance in the game, you kind of plunge into an aquarium and suddenly it's easy, right? Suddenly, like, mm -hmm. your, your native biome and, and you can, and so it's, it's kind of all about that. So it might be interesting if you want to take a look at it. I'm linking the, um, the blog post in the chat if you want. But yeah, uh, long story short, just wondering if you, um, inter if you engage with uh, video games or interactive uh, environments, virtual environments. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so it's a fantastic question. I've, I've known Alenda for a long time, and so I've always sort of had the, the video game um, virtual environment uh, 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 interlocutor presence, presence there. Um, now, in the book, chapter three is probably the most relevant, which is on uh, data visualizations and uh, um, uh, different kinds of uh, virtual, virtual water. Um, and so I look at two different media um, projects that uh, aren't, aren't video games per se, but I mean, are still um, computational media. So I contrast uh, Google Oceans with an, a, an artwork called Atlas and Silico. And uh, this, the Atlas and Silico was about uh, rendering different um, marine microbes into this kind of VR installation. And uh, Google Oceans um, has its own terrestrial bias as well, because if you look at Street View, it's actually just streets plunked into the plunked into the ocean, and so in thinking about uh, the storage of information in the ocean, uh, I actually um, contest different kinds of uh, metaphors that swirl around um, the uh, you know like surfing surfing the internet or the flow of information. And there's a way that these metaphors come in to naturalize or give um, sort of physical shape to uh, or lend a kind of uh, figuration to different kinds of um, different kinds of information, um, and so writing that chapter um, made me think differently about a couple different games. Um, so, for example, Abzu is a is a good diving game. Um, this one also great for novice video game players. So, I, I, uh, Alenda is way more adept <laughs> in that sphere. Uh, but Abzu is really interesting because you play this this. Uh, uh, character that doesn't need to breathe but it can surface and it's it's um, robotic and it navigates this kind of mystery of um, a past civilization and so it's actually you now that I think about it really great for people interested in museums and artifacts as well um, also yeah I think I mentioned this already but very easy to play it's it's by the same creators of journey and is incredibly accessible uh, so that one um, I I, uh, I almost added a section at the end of the interface chapter on that game, but in, in the end, um, the push to write the book didn't allow, uh, quite allow for that. Uh, but, but that one, yeah, I think lended, um, I remember at the time, at the time I played it, thinking a lot about um, how that character negotiates interfaces um, and then also, uh, you know, the, the need to breathe is an interesting um, function, I think, in games. So uh, my partner, who plays more games than I do, um, has played Subnautica, and there's a couple moments where uh, the character emerges out into the deep, and um, the, the realist in me was saying, oh, that wouldn't happen. They would be crushed by the pressures at that depth. And so there's a way that video games often skip through uh, some of the uh, physical constraints of seawater. And so one thing I was trying to point to in Chapter 3, actually, is... Uh, which qualities of seawater are selected for in 
digital representations of the oceans or cinematic representations of the oceans. These tend to be uh, visual um, and they often treat seawater as fairly transparent, not opaque. And I can tell you from some different diving experiences, uh, that's not always the case. Um, sometimes the water is so murky, it's like you can only see a few feet in front of you and then you have to just give up and, and go home that day. But um, other occasions uh, in special places of the world, it, it can be uh, it can look exactly like air um, if you're in a very, very pristine freshwater cavern. So, um, so anyway, uh, so I think that one thing to look for in games are the, the physics of water and viscosity and moving through it and uh, thinking about how uh, the, those physics of movement um, are rendered in, in different spaces and also where does pressure come in? Uh, so chapter one on the interface, um, I forgot to mention this earlier, but one thing I really think through are the are different uh, representations of pressure and where pressure matters as a uh, as a as a media or as a literary convention and um, you know who's who's really addressed this. It's something that's just very easy to skip if you solely fo uh, focus on the, the visual. And so, um, yeah, so the, the, so I think the really big question is which model, which properties of seawater um, or the, you know, the ocean and its ecosystem get, end up getting into, <laughs> into some of these, these, uh, these video games and where do they mix? And if you ever see tropical fish alongside kelp, that's probably not a realistic representation uh, because the kelp is a cold water um, sort of uh, organism that's common to places like uh, Santa Barbara, where, where uh, I'm living now. Um, whereas, uh, uh, you know, tropical fish, they like it warmer. So um, just one thing to note there. Thanks for your question, though. Yes, very interesting. And, and to think about, I think, pressure is, is interesting to compare to how people have or haven't talked about that on, on elevation too, right? Yes. <laughs> that you get actually very sick. So both times that I've been at, at really high elevation when I went to Cusco um, in Peru and uh, you go from Lima, which is, you know, close to, to sea level up to Cusco and in a rapid way because you, you fly there. Um, and both times I got terribly ill, um, you know, for, for a day where you just can't do anything because of the altitude sickness. But, you know, if you're going to make a game, you kind of just, ah, let's just drop them at the top of some mountain, right? <laughs> exactly. That's actually, a, that's a really wonderful example of uh, how some of the, what, what I was trying to work with, with milieu-specific thinking um, can offer a comparison between ocean, ocean transitions and inhabitations and uh, high altitude. And um, just briefly to add, like uh, last summer, I was thinking about this because I had my first high altitude experience and was wondering, like, how's this going to go? <laughs> uh, how, and, uh, you know, what does it mean to plan for transition moments where the ascent is not so rapid, but you actually acclimate and then and then go up, go up somewhere. And um, had a parent who was who got incredibly altitude sick. And I have another one who, who does fantastic and has this sort of um, interest like recognizable transition at around 11,000 feet where like my my mom feels better all of a sudden than she did the previous bit and so there's these I think that there's there's got to be uh, some some space here for an article that compares uh, aquatic transitions and uh, and the that the high altitude transition to mm -hmm. and I think yeah, that, that factor of time and duration and speed is also very, is common, um, I think, to both, but probably even slower for high altitude, whereas for scuba diving, one thing that's really important is to take a decompression stop at 15 feet uh, after your dive. And the idea here is um, to give your body enough time to, it's called off-gassing. Uh, so it's the same principle as opening um, a bottle of champagne or a can of soda very, very slowly so that it doesn't explode um, and get, you know, bubbles in places that you don't want, like your joints or your heart or, you know, somewhere like that. So instead, um, especially if you've gone very deep, you have to just hang out at 15 feet and take a decompression stop. And uh, this kind of slowness, again, um, which is similar to high altitude, is, is why you can't think of amphibiousness in just a kind of um, powerful uh, way. There are very real physiological constraints on transitioning between environments. Uh, and I've just found those really interesting. Great. We had a question from uh, Sky who wrote in the, the chat 
um, which I think is an interesting question to, how do you think traditional Western colonial exploration of the ocean continues to influence then the ocean in these media things like as a database? As uh, as it's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's all over the place. Um, I mean, it's not difficult to look for uh, colonial legacies of ocean exploration, uh, including who has the money to do it uh, and who thinks that they have um, the, the right to. Uh, so I've been very influenced by um, uh, decolonial thinking in works uh, by people like Karen Amamoto Ingersoll, uh, who wrote a fantastic book called Waves of Knowing, which is about Hawaiian epistemologies of uh, ocean, ocean navigation um, and, and, um, and movement. So she looks at um, surfing and, uh, and uh, navigation on, um, I, forget, I forget the name of the boat, but certain traditional boats is, as, uh, as these, as these e for forms of ecological knowledge and engagement with the ocean. Um, th these people I'm all very familiar with. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I, oh, another one I should mention too is my colleague, uh, Teresa Shuri, which has a fantastic book about uh, Pacific indigenous literature. It's called Hope at Sea. Um, and she also writes in a, in a very fir firmly um, decolonial um, sort of framework. So um, yeah, it's not hard to look for these. Uh, I think that um, a large part of the entitlement to ocean exploration it comes from a colonial legacy and the science is tied into that to a certain degree too. Um, and uh, Cousteau was absolutely in this, but then you also have people who I think um, honestly are more responsible um, like Sylvia Earle, uh, who's a fantastic uh, ocean diver who's now in her 80s and is still still going strong at it. And she has been one of the most influential ocean activists in um, at least in the West. But one of the things that she's done is um, also try to partner with um, people around the world to create what they call hope spots um, or areas of marine conservation uh, that um, are locally, um, you know, sort of managed um, as places that are off limits to uh, different kinds of extraction. Um, and so I think that she would be a person who um, creates space for different kinds of um, collaborations in a way that's, that's actually quite productive. Uh, and she also um, was one of the people um, who um, was, you know, it's always funny being an English professor and learning word etym etymologies from scientists, but uh, she, she's the one where I learned what fathoming meant. Um, and so she, uh, in, in one of her books, uh, I remember encountering this, this, uh, this definition, which um, had to do with uh, not just six feet, but it's actually the measure of one man's arms or six feet. And so it, it has to do with a kind of embrace. And I thought this was really generative to think with and also uh, acknowledges this element of gender that she uh, also had to deal with throughout her career. Um, you know, of course, the standardization is to a man's body, right? Uh, but um, but but to think of fathoming as a kind of measured embrace in that way was, um, I think, just so in line with um, feminist STS and uh, situated knowledges and thinking about the importance of the uh, who for whom knowledge is being made and who's who's stepping into uh, into that space. Um, but yeah, to get back to your question, to, let's say to think of Western colonial exploration. Um, does this manifest in science fiction? Yeah, it does <laughs> too. It's, again, I mean, it's just one of those things that's so, so, so pervasive. Um, and uh, especially science fiction that deals with um, alien oceans, uh, other plant oceans on other planets. I think you can find the colonialism particularly rife there. So Stanislaw Lem Solaris would be a great example of that kind of scientific colonialist hubris, uh, except that the ocean in that case consistently deters measurement and frustrates the scientists deeply. And in the end, they don't really um, ever come to know it's, it's, um, it's sort of sentient nature because it's outside a dimension that they can recognize. Yeah, I think that kind of recognition is where science fiction can play with a lot of these uh, issues, right? Because you can actually, um, yeah, try and write a being that does think differently. Although of course, because you're writing it in our media, then it can only think in the words that we can give to it. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so there's this catch-22 about you can envision it in some sense, but can you really describe it um, as, as functioning entirely differently? Or do you end up just creating um, a society uh, in the ocean that somehow looks like a human society that you know, right? So you project into it. 
One of the perennial um, questions with SF for sure. <laughs> exactly. So um, Mehdi had a comment about diving. So so diving as being um, something about solitude and this membrane around your body that's protecting mm. you. For, so, so you have an interface um, yes. <laughs> with, with your body that's there. So how, how have you experienced notions of a separate self while diving then? Are there is there something about being separate, being solitary, or is it a community thing because you don't go diving by yourself um, for safety purposes? Or mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's definitely the case. Um, you, it, it's very. Although people do uh, solo dives occasionally, it's it's usually very strongly recommended you go with a buddy. Um, just because in case you get into trouble, you have someone who's who's right there. And one of the more important things is being able to lend um, each other an air source just in case. So you always carry two with you. There's one for you and one one that's an extra. And uh, mm -hmm. that doubles uh, the um, number of regulators that are available. And I think it, it's, you know, one thing that makes it makes it safer. Um, you know, a lot of people... Uh, describe scuba diving as uh, being this sort of meditative experience because of the kind of rhythm of breathing that you you settle into and the uh it's uh, people are often very proud <laughs> when they when they can maximize their air and so to do that you can't be huffing on the the, the uh regulator uh too strongly and if you exert yourself and you know swim really hard somewhere then you're, you're going to do that uh, so people who've done this for a while um, usually take great pride in saying, oh, well, I finished my dive with a thousand PSI and I wasn't even close to maxing it out. Um, and to, to be able to do that means um, uh, just being very, uh, just uh, sipping your air um, and being comfortable with that you don't want to obviously starve yourself for air, but, but there's, um, but through practice, this is something um, people are quite proud of. Um, and I think that that, that always um, feels really good physiologically. If you think about yoga breathing and other things, I think there's also something yet to be written on scuba diving and, and yoga in some way. Um, if not only for some of the, the balance challenges of getting your equipment on, <laughs> like there's, there's also the kind of uh, the, the breathing, um, the breathing aspect that they, they share in common. Um, and I think that there's, there's something about that that provides solitude within company because you are diving with other partners, but everyone's having their own individual experience. And uh, one thing that I don't write about in the book, but that I can talk freely about here is that I have a very hard time keeping a linear sense of time when I'm diving underwater. And so one thing that happens is, you know, you have this, this fantastic, uh, well, usually, uh, <laughs> barring motion sickness or other things, usually you have this great experience sort of going around at different uh, depths to different pockets and seeing things. And then uh, when you emerge at the end of the dive, everyone gets back to the boat and they, they always ask the same question, which is, what did you see? Um, how was your, or how was your dive? What did you see? And so then the recollection becomes this list of creatures that you saw, but that doesn't always approximate the, the feeling or the, um, the uh, experience of space of spatial orientation that's this kind of body memory you know like if you go skiing or if you go um in a boat and you're moving all the time i really think there's something about how the 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 movement leaves its own kind of imprint but see that's a metaphor too and it's close to inscription but it leaves its own kind of residue um in body memory afterwards and uh, one of the pleasures of scuba diving is that it does that too and so part of what you bring with you is this non uh very difficult to kind of narrate almost memory of the experience that comes comes out of that um so i mean it's almost like being in a dream state i i think um and i've heard others talk about uh feeling that their gills are dry if they haven't been diving in long enough of a time um so it's a sort of funny metaphor that you know gets tossed around well finarna had a question yeah so i have never dived uh i like being on top of water uh and would not want to go underwater but mm -hmm. at the same time we spend a lot of time underwater one of our favorite activities is to watch the okeanos uh do the deep sea dives and live stream nice. with scientists commenting on the on the stream mm -hmm. so when they dive and have like one two weeks we have it on constantly on the tv so you watch it <laughs> which, which is like this this way of experience. I mean, you see all this, these squids and you see the, 
just uh, the ocean floor, uh, mm -hmm. all the formations, etc. So, so it's like it, it's a, I mean, it's a real experience in one way. It's also very fascinating. But what I think this this makes me think about here then is is you mentioned the idea of time, but it's also this idea of historical time and the way the media we have available for sensing underwater environments. How do you think that shapes uh, the way we envision them in a way as media, as database? The way you, you know, so do you have any concept of historical time in your book and how, mm -hmm. how in a way available sensory experiences at the time the science fiction or other views of the underwater uh, media comes from? Mm -hmm. um, so I think the closest thing to this would be my discussion of uh, the retroactive view of uh, media. And so um, that comes out, how, comes out of how I was reading John Duran Peters, especially his most recent book, The Marvelous Clouds. And one thing that he discusses in that book um, are, he makes these kind of analogies to the way that different elements of the environment, like the sky, uh, function as compasses or as watches. Um, and uh, there's um, a few other examples too. Um, I forget if this was in his book or a different whale book I picked up, but um, you can also think of this with the invention of sonar. And so we had no recognition of dolphins and whales as fundamentally acoustic beings um, until the invention of sonar, which is a technology that approximates what whales and dolphins already have been doing for however long in evolutionary history they, you know, they've had that. Uh, and so if you think about the historical time here, there's a sort of lag where it's the invention of a technology that tends to uh, double or imitate or mimic something that is already out in the environment that then allows us to look back and recognize that as a media form because of its, its parallel function. And I thought that that was a really key sort of element of Peter's, Peter's argument in his book um, and is also sort of the conundrum we find ourselves in uh, with the whole question of where do you look? Where do you know to look? And uh, what kind of um, instruments do you develop in order to, to do that? Um, I think it was Karen Barad maybe that said uh, every instrument is a hypothesis uh, and she was talking about this in the context of physics, uh, but I think it's not inaccurate to also bring that to, to bear on different kinds of um, uh, ocean media as well. Um, the one thing I will say about ocean, um, ocean sensing media though um, is that uh, it face, they face a lot more challenges than simply sending things into space or operating in air environments because of pressure, salinity, temperature, water. <laughs> and, and so all those elements make uh, deep sea or um, sort of ocean engineering a lot more challenging often. Um, and so uh, it can be helpful to talk to some of the people that make this stuff that um, is, is designed to go down into the water column. Great. Um, Sarah, you had a question about fog. Hi. Um, uh, I really love this uh, idea of milieu-specific embodiment, and um, I really appreciate your um, distinction uh, or your your thinking about how uh, thinking about terrestrial and and underwater environments are not dichotomous, but um, but they're it's better to think about them as sort of milieu-specific. And I I wonder if you have thought at all, or if you have any ideas about what I would think of as kind of intermediate environments. So my research mm -hmm. project currently is about fog. And so mm -hmm. I'm thinking about being in a vaporous, very wet, but still terrestrial <laughs> environment. And if this is, um, if there's a, a place in this, in, in your theorizing for that, I, I, I see it very clearly that the idea of a milieu specific um, perceptual environment fog obviously changes our perception, changes smells, changes sounds, changes um, visual perception. Mm. And so if it's, if it's very easily, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that yourself. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's funny you ask that because I'm looking out my window right now and if I had turned the computer, the desktop around, you would see this mm -hmm. bank of fog actually uh, just hanging out, hanging outside. Um, I think that'd be a fantastic uh, in milieu really to, to think about. Um, now, what's interesting about that one is that it offers similarities to the ocean because it's, it's, uh, it's on the move, right? It's not staying in place necessarily in the fog. The fog can 
um, come in thicker, swirl, depending on the, the uh, available moisture and things. And so, um, you know, whereas you can point to high altitude as a kind of anchored mill anchored environment right that's not moving in our lifetimes that much maybe a few inches if there's if there's um a sort of a geologic forces going on uh you know fog is on the move and um so it would i think it would be i guess hmm yeah um really fascinating to think about as for for its affordances too what it brings to mind is this one scene in the film arrival uh which has to do with these uh aliens that come to earth they happen to look a lot like octopi or hands but they also sound like elephants and there's this whole writing system that's imagined and the protagonist is a linguist um which you know in the humanities we're like yay a hero who's a linguist that's, that's fantastic um but the there's a fog scene in there that's that's uh, really quite important too and you know fog is interesting because it deters different kinds of visual um uh feelings of i don't know what would you would call it uh visual feelings of knowledge or uh, visual dominance over a landscape. You, you can't really have that if everything's foggy. And so I imagine there would also be something here around different kinds of orientation you could explore and uh, what, what that does. Um, and the relationship to, uh, of course, all the other elements swirling around uh, as well. Um, so time of day, if the sun's out, is there heat? Is there, is there stuff... Um, um, is the yeah is the uh, is the ground damp? I have another student who's writing about humidity in one of his chap his uh, dissertation chapters, and I think there's uh, you know of course something there, although the fog is of course more more dense. Um, so yeah, this is a fantastic topic. I'm just sort of riffing here and don't have um, specific suggestions, but I could see it as a sort of kindred ocean environment um, in in many in many ways. Great. Gita had a question, which I'll read. Um, have you done any thinking on the difference between archaeology and marine archaeology? So how is the water seen as a protecting media Ooh. Right, when you leave the cultural artifacts underwater instead of digging them up from the ground where you somehow think the context you know, is destroyed. So are there, are they similar, not similar? Have you thought at all about archeology span in the land versus sea? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think one of the big differences is that in water, and, and it really depends which water here. So um, one would need to be specific about this. There's living, there's living organisms in the water. Um, so if the, if the water is helping function as a blanket or a kind of uh, insulating medium to protect something like, say, an old ship uh, that was sunken um, many, many years ago, um, then uh, that water may be offering a storage function at the same time that it's also uh, doing other biotic things. And I think that the, the consequences of that tap into these... Um, other long-standing imaginaries of the ocean as a very as a kind of vivacious medium, um, or what uh, Eva Hayward uh, referred to as gestationality, um, in uh, in some of her work, and that has to do with the way that the the water will bring creatures in um, or or not um, to different places, and it depends on if it's anoxic or or not, like how much oxygen is in in the water. Um, in order to make, uh, allow for storage to happen. Uh, so when I was thinking about these underwater sculptures that Jason DeCaris Taylor had made that are intentionally placed in these uh, fairly shallow sites of maybe 30, 40 feet, um, uh, thus accessible to tourists, uh, including novice tourists who, uh, only, uh, who may or may not be dive certified. And uh, these, these sculptures were designed uh, to have organisms grow on them. Um, and so the configuration of um, the whole setup was a kind of almost collaborative artistic uh, relationship between the, um, the qualities of seawater as a gestational force and uh, the artist's own intention as putting these sculptures down in the first place. Um, and so I think that that, uh, that uh, living element of what water can bring, not all water, but many waters, what, what they can bring changes how you think about uh, preservation in a marine context. Now with marine archaeology, um, thing, what's, what's excavated is still in a kind of terrestrial substrate because it's in, it's in the, the, the seafloor and the sediment. And so they would share that in common. But the degree of access to them are, degrees of access to them are, are quite different and would um, allow for different challenges. So uh, for example, um, one thing you have to worry about when you excavate underwater is uh, 
uh, stirring up too much sediment so you can't see. And so that, um, that would be, I think, maybe one of the more important differences between um, excavation at, say, a mountainside compared with uh, excavation um, at, uh, in the seafloor in North Carolina looking for a shipwreck or you know, something like that. You'd have to be very careful about stirring up sediment. And uh, that's also a concern in um, freshwater cavern diving too. Uh, if, you're, if you're diving too close to the bottom, there's a special kick you use so that you don't stir up the sediment and make it cloudy so no one can see and you know, find out where they are. Um, so the water uh, adds this other um, sort of slowed down um, and suspended. It has a sort of slowed down and suspended properties that would be important to think about between marine archeology span and um, terrestrial. Well, thinking about that suspendedness, um, there had been a comment earlier from um, Ted asking about salt. So um, how does salt factor into then seawater as a medium? Oh, <laughs> well, you know, there's a distinction in um, ocean humanities and or water humanities scholars between sweet water and freshwater. So the freshwater people kind of uh, have specific things they think about with rivers and lakes, um, whereas the salt, salt ecologies, ecologies are just really different. Um, salt makes seawater heavier, so um, you can think about different uh, uh, sort of uh, densities of water depending on salt, salt and other mineral concentration. And one of the important uh, interfaces or boundaries in the ocean is called the halocline, which is a sort of um, change in the density of saltiness um, between the two. Um, so you see me here, you know, um, as a humanist thinking very, very hard about the uh, different aspects of the physical ecology. And I think these matter because they change how we think poetically about these spaces. So I just want to tag, tag, that, tag that in there. Um, and, uh, and when you, I mean, another thing with salt too is that uh, in the deep ocean, one of the um, uh, fascinating things uh, that uh, scientists have come upon are these things called brine pools. And the brine pools were left over from a different, different age and they're, they're hypersaline um, sort of underwater lakes. And so if you're thinking about a kind of dichotomy of surface and depth, right, like that we imagine in, um, with surface reading or you know the debates around this that doesn't work when you have not just one surface but an underwater lake on top of that and so if you you sort of turn to the different the the, the poetics of the different physical qualities of the ocean this opens up a whole other spatial imaginary for how we abstract and how we schematize things um, and think about surfaces within surfaces or these pools that are within a body of water um, or even, you know, the currents do this too. There's a fantastic book on eels uh, that just came out. Um, uh, the book of eels, maybe this is familiar because it, there's a, it's by a Swedish author. Uh, and uh, that book talks about their birthplace in the Sargasso Sea, uh, whose boundaries are delimited by currents. And so this, it's a sea within a sea and differently than we normally think about it because the boundaries in the ocean are um, uh, still there, but not the same way we think about them than, um, you know, with like a, a river that divides two land spaces or something that um, is maybe more uh, familiar or conventional to turn to. All right, so thank you for this. This was absolutely fascinating, uh, but our time is running out. So I guess we have to, to surface again, right? <laughs> uh, I just want to thank you all for coming and thanks to you, Melody, for taking the time early in the morning to, uh, to come share your book with us. Uh, it was it was great. Yes. So. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it, was, it was great to be here and to uh, hear your questions. I appreciate it.